0: the responsibilities that the Lord has placed on national Israel as taught in Exodus chapter 20 and elaborated on by the Lord Jesus Christ in this famous message, the most famous sermon ever taught, the Sermon on the Mount. Of course, we need God to work in our hearts to make these things real to us. Let's ask his favor on this time of study. Let's pray. Many prayers have been offered to you today, Father, and many will indeed continue to be offered to you. We pray for the lost and for the prodigals. We pray for their strength and their encouragement to open their hearts to you and live their lives to be pleasing to you and to not be stained by the world, to not, not to walk after the flesh, to embrace your wisdom and the fear of the Lord. And Father, help us today as we consider what you expect. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Gospel of Matthew, we've introduced it many times, and I want to remind you there are kind of two major purposes that come out of the Gospel of Matthew as presented. They're all, all the stories in Matthew are leading up to major discourses, major messages Jesus gave. Five major messages Matthew structured his Gospel, his presentation of Christ. And what's happening is Jesus is offering the kingdom to national Israel, and they reject it, and then he goes to the cross. He offers the kingdom as the offering king to national Israel. They reject it, and then he goes to the cross. And all the while, he's training his disciples to be his disciples as his representatives after he leaves. And that answers the Christian Jewish readers, the recipients of the first generation to receive Matthew. It equips them to understand how the Old Testament is indeed pointing to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah who will rule how he isn't ruling now, but he will come back in this coming kingdom. He isn't ruling in this coming kingdom, I say, that was promised in the prophets in Israel. It doesn't say that he's not the Lord. It doesn't say that he's not living ever to make intercession at the right hand of the Father for us. It's to say that the promised offered kingdom hasn't been been rejected by God. It hasn't been rescinded. And what he's doing now doesn't cancel what was promised in the Old Testament. There is a coming conflagration where the nations will have a reckoning with the Messiah and he will set up his kingdom and rule it with a rod of iron. And so we're in the anticipation phase of this. We're looking forward to it. And we don't deny anything that God promised national Israel. In fact, we insist that it's going to happen. And what you have in Matthew 5 through 7 is uh, what we're calling the kingdom platform. Here's an outline of the first uh, all, 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 the first chapter, chapter five of the Sermon on the Mount, and we are moving into where Jesus teaches on what the law is and the righteousness of God requires. What the law is, and uh, the picture in it of God's righteousness. And last hour, introducing the topic of stewardship or Christian ownership, we said that you can see this anywhere in Scripture where God is delivering His word. And we looked in Exodus twenty at the Ten Commandments. And Jesus is going to give now, as we read through, an exposition of the Ten Commandments for our edification so that we'll understand uh, the righteousness of God. And so um, this exposition uh, looks like this. I'll just click it all the way through. And if you look at what's in bold on this busy slide, you have Jesus' instructions concerning murder, adultery, divorce, taking vows, retaliation, and love of one's neighbor. Different aspects of Mosaic law and first century. Uh, Judaism, first century Jewish culture, as they understood what Moses commanded and how it had been mixed and blended with the traditions of men, in some cases to deny what the scriptures require, what God had actually said. And so this is your detailed outline of Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get through part of this today. It's going to be very juicy for us because Jesus is going to talk about murder, adultery, and divorce in our reading of the kingdom platform. And I'll give you a hint. He is for. Um, marriage, and he's against murder, adultery, and divorce. He's for marriage, but he's against murder, adultery, and divorce, and he doesn't pull punches when he talks about this. And so understanding where I'm coming from on teaching the Word of God, I hope you can, you can grasp that the Word corrects us when we're wrong. It makes what we do as mistakes very clear to us and makes corrections if we'll receive them. And what we do with God's word is, actually, it turns out to be a, a, a sacred trust God has given us. We have the volitional responsibility to say yes to God. It's our responsibility, but we also have the capacity, the power that He's delegated to us to say no. But this is what my culture does, but you don't understand. And this is very challenging material today, but it is, after all, an exposition Jesus gives of the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, and uh, various aspects of Judaism in the first century. And therefore, Jesus is going to bring out the consideration of God's righteousness. Now, most of us don't make decisions when we're a- a- after the flesh, when we're wondering what the world does, or this is what's convenient for me. We don't make our decisions based on righteousness. We're not asking what is the righteous choice, but we should. And Jesus is teaching his disciples to do that in this passage. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you've heard that the ancients were told, this is New American Standard, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother should be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, should be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says you fool should be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Uh, <clears throat> It's very clear that he's talking about the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and it's translated correctly that way in the New American Standard Exodus 20. It's translated correctly here. It is not any killing. It is killing illicitly. It's killing someone that you're not supposed to kill. Some people are supposed to be killed. Other people are not. Most of us are not. And so capital offenses are separate. Military killing is a different topic. This is about what we call in our culture murder. Whoever commits murder will be liable to the court. What's really obvious as you observe the text, as you just read in English, is what Jesus does with his um, expansions. He's expanding or escalating. He says guilty to the court, liable to the court, liable to the Supreme Court, going to hell, right? That's, it, it goes lesser to greater, and he builds. But the direction of the other part, the, the offenses, um, might seem um, not to escalate. If you're just angry with your brother, liable to the court. If you say you empty head, literally, or akha, if you say empty head, then you're going to the Supreme Court. And if you say just moron or fool, um, um, the word in would be kasil in Hebrew. You can just call him you fool, going to the lake of fire. There's escalating punishments depending on who's making the judgment. But the sins that he's describing, mental attitude sin, verbal sin, verbal sin, they don't seem to be escalating. They're all of the same category. It's obvious that he's doing this. He does this kind of escalation. In the Greek, um, well, oh no, we're not to Greek yet. Verse 23, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, this is an interesting passage that you just kind of read through and you kind of forget what you're reading when you're trying to figure out your life. When people say, I live my life by the Sermon on the Mount, we're kind of like, do you present an offering at the priests at the temple to be slaughtered? Is that how you worship God? Because nobody has since 70 AD, since the temple was destroyed. So we're not... Really reading the Bible historically, if we're not careful, right, to say that Jesus is talking to people that do this. They would take their offerings according to the Levitical code and bring their offerings to the priests and have them slaughtered. And and, uh, he's talking about how to conduct yourself with one another under the conditions in which they lived. So, yes, Jesus in his speech is talking to national Israel before he came, before he died for their sins. I should say before he rose from the dead, before he sent the Spirit. Matthew is writing Jesus' words so that people who have the Holy Spirit, who are brothers and sisters in Christ in this church age, can know what Jesus was teaching. And so there, there's the difference the audience between who Jesus is speaking to and who uh, Matthew's writing to. But the difference, the difference is resolved when you realize Jesus is speaking to his disciples. The disciples before he went to the cross and the disciples after as Matthew's readership. But notice that You can't directly apply every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount to a Christian in this age. There's no temple. We're not even supposed to bring these offerings because it's not for us. It's a dispensational distinction. And um, if you don't bring an animal of sacrifice to the altar, you are some kind of dispensationalist. That's offensive to non-dispensationalists because they think it's a bad word. But I'm just trying to let you understand what the word means. It means we see the distinctions that God has in his administrations through the ages in verse 25 make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge the officer and you'll be thrown into prison that sounds like the beginning of an escalation but it's really just the the process judge officer prison it's not escalation it's just you're going to go through this process because once you're in the legal court system The appeal to your brother for fellowship, for recovery, for restoration, this is not going to be a factor. The judge doesn't care about the personal stuff between you two. The judge is executing the law uh, mathematically. That's what he's supposed to be doing. And And this is one of the hardest statements. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. You can't beg off when you get to the judge, in other words. You better deal beforehand while there's a grace period in terms of dealing with your friend. Now let's do it in Greek. We won't read the Greek out loud very often, but he says... Uh, and I, I put the Greek because I want to translate. I want to pick up every little piece I can get. I want to get as much nutrients out of this as I can in the time allotted. And understand every message here is a summary of what could be a six or, or, or longer hour message. And it really could. It really could. Just keep feeding me water. I would probably be able to, to, to talk more about what the insights are. But, but we just have to summarize. Just give you a thumbnail sketch. Just a th- that's why I talk so fast. Is I want, want to get as much of a dense summary as I can. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told. You've heard. So he's drawing their attention back to Exodus when God said, you will not murder. You shall not, thou shalt not murder. He's drawing their attention to the origin of the giving of the law. And think about it, they were told. Who told them? Yahweh said that from the mountain as we saw last hour. You could read the story in Exodus 19 and 20. They were told. What? You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Jesus is not contradicting this statement, and he doesn't contradict anything that the Mosaic Law says in this sermon. He doesn't contradict the Mosaic Law. What he does is he contradicts the additions that the Jewish crowd has added on, the religious crowd has added on to the the scriptures. But he quotes the scriptures directly and agrees with them directly he says you've heard it that the ancients were told how did they hear that they heard exodus read publicly you've heard it read in exodus that the ancients were told that's the the nation of israel gather around mount sinai you shall not commit murder and not in the scriptures whoever should commit murder he will be subject to the judgment to the crees, This is the word for judgment. And so probably rightly translated courts with the administrative arm of the Mosaic law. They had to set up administrative courts to carry out the dictates of the law. And it is not very regulated how they would do it. It's just you have to do this. And so they did have a system of courts. And so this is a summary. You should not commit murder is... is um, whoever should commit murder will be subject to the judgment is a summary of what the Mosaic law requires. That we're talking about, think about it, criminal code, criminal law. A murderer must be brought to justice. The country is responsible to carry out Genesis 9, 6, on the murderer. God requires that of all people, Noah and his family is everybody. And then he specifies explicitly through the Mosaic law what's supposed to happen with murder. You're supposed to remove this from the community. That's the idea. And it's honoring the image bearer, the one who bears God's image, um, the human being who has been murdered when you take uh, the life, the execute, the, the murderer. And so the topic is how the Mosaic law regulates regulates with legal code the life of the nation. And if you read, go back to Exodus 20, if you read it, you know, it's really clear. A murder is something you did or you didn't do. It didn't kind of murder the person. There is manslaughter. There's provision in the law, but we're talking about a clear case of murder. Two witnesses established the matter. Okay, we saw him do it. He did it on purpose. That's it. That's, that's a murder. The, the Mosaic law given in Exodus 20, the, the Ten Commandments, are really clear on things that are kind of cut and dried. If you lie about someone in court, that is a a judicially, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Prosecutable offense. When they can determine that you've borne false witness against your neighbor, that's legal code. If there's an adultery, you either did it or you didn't do it it's it's something that is managed within civil code and that's really important to understand that they had a theocracy nobody with any biblical awareness was uh, has been advocating here in these United States since the colonies for a theocracy they, they talked like they wanted to have one, and they, but, but they, they found out very early, the Puritans, and they, you can't have a theocracy here because God hasn't done with us what he did with them. We don't have a Moses giving us the Mosaic law and God showing up and saying, from the cloud and the fire, this is the way. He didn't do that with us, so we're trying to build the civilization. What we've tried to do is build the civilization with reference to what he said in the Bible, but never was there ever a sense where we are a theocracy, But these people are a theocracy. These people have God as their king, and he's the lawgiver, and they're supposed to carry it out. And he's saying murder gets execution. Murder goes to civil court. Adultery, too, got execution. is also a capital crime. And so this is their legal code with reference to how they would execute criminal justice in their country. So when you understand that, then you can say, That doesn't say anything about what's going on in here. I mean, I killed the person or I didn't, right? But Jesus is going to say, it wasn't just for legal code. This was how you would relate to me. This is to relate to God. And that's where he goes next. You've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, which is true. But I say to you, doesn't contradict. It helps you further understand the spirit of that statement, not to murder. Everyone who's angry with his brother, and the majority of manuscripts say without cause. Everyone who is angry with his brother, or geizomai to be angry, orgē is the noun means wrath, and orgizomai is one of the verbs for anger. Everyone who's angry with his brother, and we'll leave it as just angry with his brother. Probably, he will be liable to the judgment that same word used for the murderer, he'll be liable to the judgment. But now we're not talking about the court system. We're talking about there's really a God who really expects things and he has real judgment. And so he uses the same word, but he switches how it's applied. You can take someone that murders to court and the the elders of the court are gonna have to rule. This isn't that. The court can't weigh in on whether you're angry with your brother. But this is internal. And this means, what we said first hour, that God in Exodus is calling individual Israelites to worship him and how they treated one another. It's about a personal relationship with God. And the inner person is the source of the outer actions. And the personal relationship with God is the motivation for how you treat one another. And so that's the spirit of the law. And so just being angry with your brother makes you liable to the real spiritual, heavenly judgment. The righteousness of God looks on your sin and says that's wrong and the justice of God must condemn it. And that's the judgment that we're talking about here. It's not the civil court or the criminal court. He'll be liable to the judgment and further, I say further because we have a deh, which generally advances the conversation. And further, whoever says to his brother, Whoever says to the Adelphos of him, to his brother, Raka. Oh, doesn't that speak to your heart? Whoever says Raka. Well, there's a little bit of an argument in the scholarship, but I'll go with the one guy, the one, the one study that said Rakha, is It's Hebrew, Recha, and it probably means empty-headed. Just airhead. It's not a heavy thing to call someone an airhead. Okay. If you call your brother raha, my Bible uh, suggests "good for nothing." Okay, empty head. Nin can poop. Uh, the Germans would call him a doom cough. Uh, or you can think of other uh, silly um, name calling that you might give to a to a, a racha. But if you just say this to your brother, now you're angry in your heart. You said it. Now, we've gone to verbal, and Jesus has these two categories. Whoever says to his brother Raka, he will be liable to the Sanhedrin. The higher judgment, the next level. So, see, the real eldership that's really judging, they don't like this. And, and I, I've translated Sanhedrin because it says, Sun adrio, that's Sanhedrin. That's where you get the word Sanhedrin. But translated in my English Bible, Supreme Court, is probably better for our understanding. He'll be liable to those people executing civil magistracy, See, that, that's the same law. See, the law that says don't kill someone physically is also supposed to be regulating your heart and your words, right? And this isn't Stalinism where whatever you say is gonna be used against you in the, do, in the um, um, when they come pick you up in the middle of the night for saying something that wasn't allowed because your neighbors informed on you. in uh, in the Soviet system. This This isn't that kind of regulation of speech. But the idea is that the same law that's saying don't murder someone physically is also saying what you think or say is part of the same problem because it's the heart of man where sin begins and what the law is pointing out, listen, is sin. See, in our culture, they say, somewhat rightly, it's kind of a bumper sticker that's imprecise that you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate. Well, it depends on what you mean by morality. We can legislate against murder. We can legislate against, you know, crimes against people and things. But how can the government specify or require that we love them? How can the government, how can Congress pass a law that says you're absolutely required to love us with all your heart? They can't. It's impossible. But God's law was to the heart. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. See, and that's, that's what Jesus says summarizes the law, the Mosaic law. The first four commandments are loving God. The last six commandments are loving man for God's sake in the Ten Commandments. This is the nature of the law. So what they've done is externalized. They've said, we're keeping the code as far as anyone can tell. And as far as you can judge me, you can't say that I haven't violated the sixth commandment. And Jesus is saying, the spirit of the sixth commandment is your heart. And you all have violated it. We've all murdered in that sense. Racha. And then, who, further, whoever should say, you fool. Do you see this word? M, Omega, R, E. More is uh, one, one um, conjun- conjugation of moron. This is the word in Greek for fool. And again, I, there's several words for fool in the Old Testament in Hebrew, but kassil seems to be the summary one in the book of Proverbs. Whoever says, you fool, he will be liable unto Gehenna to puras of fire, to the, to the Gehenna of fire, or Gehenna of fire. Um, I didn't translate the article because usually we don't when it's a place. This is the most common word Jesus uses in the Gospels, for the lake of fire, the lake of fire. What is the lake of fire? Well, the story behind this phrase for the final judgment of those who are separated from God, the origin of this is actually a valley um, off one of the slopes outside of Jerusalem. And in the days of Manasseh, um, there was the sacrificing of their own children to the pagan god Molech uh, with fire. And this trash place was where that was done and where it became this cursed place, this valley of the son of Hinnom, or Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom, And um, that's the name for this place. So when you talk about it after about the 600s B.C., you're saying that place of like God's judgment and wrath, where the burning continues now, a burning trash pit. And um, I believe it is one of the references that the Lord Jesus uses for the final judgment of eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Whoever should say, you fool, he will be liable unto the Gehenna of fire. Now, I, I have heard lots of expositions that try to soften the blow here and say, I mean, um, it sounds like Jesus is requiring perfection or we're all going to the lake of fire. I believe that's actually what he's doing. He's saying that the judgment that you're worried about of Well, I didn't murder anybody, so I'm not guilty before the law. No, you are guilty before the law that is actually pointing to God's righteousness because you've transgressed it, and any transgression of the law is the lake of fire. You fool is not being presented as some heavy thing to do to somebody. You fool is fairly light. Rakah is fairly light. Murder is heavy. But see, it's all the same. Anger in your heart calling your brother an empty head, calling your brother a fool. This is the lake of fire because of the real nature of the Mosaic law. It's God's righteousness, which God requires. When you don't have it, you're separated from him forever. That's the lake of fire. That's what Jesus is teaching about what the law required. And so if you wanted to adopt a theory of criminal justice where the Mosaic law was just regulating regulating exterior behavior, my external performance and I go through religious observances, and we blow the trumpet when I give my offerings. If you wanted to make that the system that the Mosaic law teaches, then you'd be directly at odds with what Jesus says the law is doing. You'd be directly at odds with what Moses is doing, what God is doing when he gave the law. He doesn't want their hands. He wants their heart. He wants their eyes. He wants their mouths. He wants their hands. He wants all of them. And that's what the law is showing. Therefore, let me apply it. If you should bring your gift to the altar, literally, and there you should remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and bring your gift. What he's doing here is summarizing, again, the Mosaic Law. Four commandments for how you treat God, six commandments for how you treat man for God's sake. And so you don't get to have the four straight but you're messing up on the other six. It's the whole, it's the completeness, it's everything. And so the priority is not that you're just, I'm just serving God, even though I've ruined my relationships and destroyed other people. To serve God and to offer an offering that he's interested in, you've got to do the rest of what he expects too toward people. That's the way God is is dealing. And that's what Jesus is saying. Leave your gift before the altar. I want you first to get right in your relationships because you called your brother an empty head or you fool or you were angry or you did something in anger toward him that violates the spirit of thou shall not murder. You've done something that transgresses the image bearer, that bears God's image in that person and you need to go and reconcile. You need to go deal with that because you did something wrong. Now what this doesn't teach, y'all don't lose this. What he's not saying is that if they perceive that you did something wrong but you didn't, that you have to go and make them perceive that they're wrong. You can't make anyone perceive anything. Perception is what happens when they open their eyes and their brain fires off and their eyes get projections that work with their brain. You have nothing to do with that process except, well, you put something in front of their eyes what they perceive of it, you cannot control. He's not saying you have to have solid relationships with everyone. He's saying when your brother has something against you, when you self-judging are in the wrong, go resolve it. I did something wrong. I need to own it. That's the idea. That's the idea. And so I think it's really important to notice how he, how he deals with these things. Isn't that helpful? He doesn't say that there's been a big misunderstanding and you need to, you need to leave off your relationship with God until you can fix their misunderstanding. You probably won't fix their misunderstanding unless there's some humility on both parties, which requires uh, a lot of God's work in the person's life, especially mine and yours and everyone else's, unless there's some humility, which enables us to actually communicate where we can hear what the person's saying and not make assumptions. And yet I know you well enough to know what your speech implies but I'm not going to assume a negative interpretation of it. It's challenging, very hard to do this, especially with well-established patterns of sin. Do you know what happens when someone sins against you habitually? There's a word we use for that in our culture. Do you know what the perpetual or habitual sin against someone is called? We call it abuse. It's abuse, misusing someone. But it's sin. Don't try to make a separate category. Oh, no, this is a pathology. Right, it's sin. It's all sin. But they do the same thing over and over. Yeah, and they're sinful. They're in a habit, in a rut of sin. Yes, that's the problem. They're a reviler or a drunkard or whatever. They're behaving in a lifestyle of rejection of God's will regarding how he treats other people or how, they, how she treats other people. But this is, this is leading out that idea that loving God means loving one another because he requires that. And if I love him, I keep his commandments. And this really does occur across all of God's revelation and his expectations for how we deal with one another. When Jesus said, Where's your brother? and Cain said, Am I br- My brother's keeper, everyone who reads that with any family experience knows the answer is yes. Of course, you're your brother's keeper. And if he needs one, because again, bearing God's image, so honoring God and how you treat other people's big deal. A big deal in the Bible people are not just an inconvenience to you getting your spiritual growth through doctrine okay that's not what people are people are God's gift to you for you to practice what you've learned in loving in the power of the Holy Spirit and it requires a supernatural effort of God to be able to do this well as we all know here on the Sunday after Thanksgiving make friends with your opponent quickly now this is a little bit different this is now, before you come under impartial judgment, establishing the value of personal relationships. This is now an opponent at law, somebody that, that has a legal case against you. Now your brother has something against you here and you need to go before the altar and deal with it. But notice now we're going to talk about how the law regulates this. If your friend that you've wronged, your ox gored your friend's ox, and he's been in a habit of goring, as the Mosaic law says, and you haven't resolved that, you haven't paid the restitution because you knew the ox was in a habit of goring. Something where it's clear that you've done something wrong or omitted something that you should have done. Well, the law regulates that. There's a case law statement for that so we can deal with this. You need to go deal with this person before it becomes adjudicated by the Mosaic law. That's the idea. Because if we have to take it to court, it's going to go all the way. And you're going to, there's, no, there's no parole. There's just the, the judgment. So in other words, forgiveness is for the personal relationship. It's clearly what's happening, not the administrative situation of the legal thing. And, and talk to lawyers, right? We have lawyers uh, that, are, that are among us but not with us today. Um, talking to them about cases, it, it's so much better. It's so much easier for everyone if we can resolve the thing before it goes to trial, before we have to spend all the money and effort and energy on making the thing forced by legal code instead of by what the parties that are aggrieved can agree to. So much better that way. Make friends with your opponent quickly while you're with him on the way, lest your opponent hand you over to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. And then he says, truly I'm saying to you, you will absolutely not be able to come out from there. That's literally what it says. See, ume plus the subjunctive is the negation of possibility. You will absolutely not be able to come out from there until you've repaid the last cent. So you you can see... There is process and procedure in the legal code, but there's also personal relationships that are the spirit of the law. And so deal at that level in the design so that you're not doing this, uh, this, this lawfare, this litigation craziness, because if you're wrong and the case is where the person's wrong, you're gonna, you're gonna pay all of it where you could have made a deal and settled and your brother forgives some of the debt. That's kind of the idea. There's wisdom. So hopefully you could see uh, Jesus is bringing out, he's moving from the mathematics of what I can do and what I can't do to the spirit of the law regulating the heart of man and our personal relationships. Y'all, y'all are all struggling with broken relationships. You know, it's because you live in Connecticut. It's New England. We have broken relationships in New England. I mean, it is. It is because you're here on planet Earth as a human being that you have broken relationships. These are tests. These are stewardships. These are opportunities for you to give it to God and to work with him through it. And it's hard because, see, a broken relationship isn't the same as a death where it's just they're gone and you're hurt because there's separation. It's that they're not gone, but they don't want anything to do with you or they want to be malicious toward you. It's very hard, very hard to deal with these things. But this is the need for the word this is the need for constant intake of god's word so i can take the spiritual truths of god's word and apply them to the personal relationship problem so today the person still hates me and today the lord jesus still paid for my sins and their sins and their hatred and today just like yesterday my view of myself is needs to be what god says and not what they say and I can have compassion from that position of strength, which I'd never have compassion on an enemy, on someone that hates me uh, without the word of God, without that rationale. All right, personal relationships. The second case, while we're on personal relationships, takes us to the, uh, the, the commandment not to commit adultery. I, I don't remember. I think that's number seven. I think it goes, I think it goes um, honor your father and mother, then no, no, st- no murder, then no adultery which is actually a kind of a murder. It's not of a human, but it destroys a human. It destroys a marriage that is a picture of, of God. We're, we bear God's image, male and female, and so there's, a, there's, there's, there's multiplicity and unity in marriage. It's not a perfect picture of the nature of God as one God in three persons, but there's something about that relationship that God calls one flesh, and it isn't just sex. The, the, the one flesh isn't just sex. Sex is the picture of the one flesh idea. But this, this union of marriage is a sacred thing to God. It's not just a, an economic convenience. It's not we had the heebie-jeebies about each other, and so we just had to, had to couldn't help it, as they say down south. I just couldn't help it. I can't help falling in love with you, as the guy from Memphis said. right? I just can't help it. But that's, but that's not, that's not what, um, what we have here. He's not from Memphis. Where is that guy from? He, he was in Memphis for a while. Anyway, the, the point is that I have a, a, an institution that God has given us here that, sure, we have powerful emotional union and bond and, and all that. And sure, there's good feeling as we get started. And sure, there's the benefit in the sexual union. Sure, there's kids and all the things. But this is God's deal. It's God's institution. And transgressing it ends up being a big deal in the Bible. It's the stitch that makes the fabric of all civilizations, marriage, husband and wife, man and woman. And transgressing it is one of the key avenues Satan attacks us on in all the different permutations of sexuality that are perversions of one man, one woman. So case number two takes us to adultery right after murder, and it's kind of a cut and dry case. You either did it or you didn't do it. You know, the depends on what the definition of is is, right? And, and determining whether it happened. It says the 90s. You've, said, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is an interesting instance where the, the, the adultery act is not a rape. It's consensual. The idea is that it's consensual for two of the parties of the three that are involved in the adultery. There's two married people and one person that's not married to those two people and they break this marriage. And so it's a consensual breaking of this this union sexually. Um, Notice that he says that you have committed adultery with her in his heart. He is not saying that she is somehow guilty in her heart unless she did the same thing. This is an individual instance of committing adultery. It's really a strange thing pornography today is this this is this is the it's this lust that is in an individual's heart that is a that is a sexual desire for somebody you're not supposed to have sexual desire for and the bible is regulating throughout the scriptures what we want but it's what i want yeah god said no god said don't want that but well, i don't have control over what i want yes you do you're responsible for your preferences you're responsible for your choice. You're responsible, the little eyes, for what you see. And so this is a weird thing in verse 28 that you have an adultery. He says, you've committed adultery. Moikeomai, uh, I think. You've committed adultery, uh, but the other person hasn't because it's you looking at them. It's very weird. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Well, Jesus is really really tough on us, isn't he? You've heard that it was said, this is the word here for moikiuo, for, 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 adult, for adultery, moikiuo. You've heard that it was said, "You shall not commit adultery." This is in the future tense, just like it would be translated from the imperfect in the the discourse um, of Exodus 20. You shall not, in the future, literally commit adultery. You don't. It's such a strong command that it's you won't do it. In English, we would translate, "You will not commit adultery." But I, now I'm saying to you that everyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of lusting after her, pros plus the accusative is do purpose or result, and I'll show you that in a second, for the purpose of lusting after her or with the result of lusting after her has already committed, committed adultery with her in his heart. All right, let's, let's paraphrase that out a little bit. Anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of having or with the result that he has sexual desire for her, that's what that means. The word for lust is epithumia. It's the verb form of this, and it's talking about strong desire sexually. So it has to do with the imagination. It has to do with the, with the inner person. It's from the eye, and the sin stops. Right here at the eye to the brain where the projection happens in the imagination. It's, it's all above your, above your tie that this is taking place. Anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose or with the result that he has sexual desire for her now let's let's establish prepositional phrases are flexible it could mean both it could mean either but it means one at least one of these two things and i think it's probably a kind of a combination of both that's how prepositions are kind of they're kind of flexible pros plus the accusative for the purpose of or pros plus accusative with the result of let's let's run it through a man looks at a woman, since that's what he's talking about, men. We have a problem with our eyes. God made our, made our bodies and brains work a certain way. We're different from women. Women have an eye gate issue, but it's not the same as men. Ladies, if you didn't know that, I hope you know that. We're different. Our brains work differently. Our eyes are more susceptible to this problem. So he says men. And that's partly why he says men. If a man looks at a woman for the purpose of having sexual desire for her, think about that it's a forethought it's this is what i'm after man you can get into a habit where you're looking at women this way as a as a habit and some struggle with this more than others but you're looking this way at women for this purpose it's it's a death to you it's a death to your life you have to set a guard on your eyes and it starts in your heart it starts inside What I want is what God wants. What I want regarding sexual practice is what God wants for me. I'm going to choose to guard my eyes and not look at women for this purpose. You know what will really help, what this will really help with you, is your friendships and relationships with women. Men, it's a real problem that Jesus addresses here. Now let's do the result. A man looks at a woman and he wasn't out for For the purpose of imagining sexual activity with her committing adultery in his heart but he looks at her and it just takes him away it just he goes there in his head he goes there in his head this happens we have a lot of help today with this ladies it isn't necessarily that all the men are just craven creeps all the time we all have it in us to be that but it is also that in our culture, we are constantly being served up with a buffet of adultery in our hearts by women showing their bodies for that purpose. It isn't in the result part that men are seeking this necessarily. It, it, it's in the purpose. But the result part, where a man looks at a woman with the result that he has sexual desire, we've got a lot of help. And this, this is the issue of modesty. There is a real wisdom to modesty, and there's a real sinful reason why little girls, young girls, before puberty little girls are, are often motivated toward this because they know there's something about it. It's a problem. The attempt to attract the eyes of a male, and little girls aren't probably thinking men, but the uh, the effort, and that, that goes into a whole dark thing where ball peen hammer time, right? We want to just shut that out from all civilization. But What I'm saying is that there's this urge women will have to to use that power of attraction because there's something about about the way these boys, these men's eyes work that they'll give attention. They're drawn. And this is all part of our sinfulness. Not the the idea of sexual attraction is a part of our sinfulness, but the sinful corruption of that attraction explains most of what's wrong with us as a people. There is no need for abortion as contraceptive after the fact if you only have sex with your spouse. We don't have the AIDS epidemic in Africa if we're only monogamous, if husbands and wives, and that's all. A lot of the problems that we are facing in the, in the world have faced over the last, uh, well, forever, really resolve when we say this is about marriage, it's only in marriage, and we res- regard that as sacred. So the point is that Jesus is making here is that it's inside your heart. It's not in the body. It's not in the physical body. There's, there's a connection between the immaterial you and the physical body. Your eyes are seeing, but then, but then your brain takes over and your, and your soul and your spirit are corrupted by looking this way with, with adulterous in, in, intent. And I didn't do anything. I didn't touch anybody. You know, the, the joke about the guys, uh, you know, in the summertime, they get their new sunglasses. Do y'all know about the men that talk about getting their new sunglasses? It's so that their wife can't see them looking at the other women, because they're dark enough you can't see. Some of you are like naively shocked at that. <laughs> Don't be naive. Don't be naive. This is this is the heart of the law. The adultery was the actionable legal. Obviously, there was the transgression physically between the two people, breaking a marriage, you know, transgressing the other spouse. But, but then, what's the heart of the law? What's the spirit of it? The spirit is that it's inside you. It's not just in your body. Uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators on, on all things American, philosophical, historical, and political is a Jewish rabbi named Dennis Prager. I love Dennis Prager. I think he's a genius. I like the way his voice sounds. He's fun to listen to. I recently heard him do an interview where he said that the difference between Judaism and Christianity is there's only one organ in Judaism you can commit adultery with. A man can only use one organ. He can't use his eyes. And by saying this, he is contradicting the spirit of the law that the great rabbi Jesus is teaching us. The law was not just about your body. It's about your heart. And it's funny that they're going to double down. We double down on hell. We don't do adultery because we don't physically do adultery. Anyone who looks at a woman for the purpose of having or with the result that he has sexual desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ugh. But if your right eye is causing you to stumble, literally present tense, it's ongoing action in the, in the description there, then tear it out and throw it from you. I believe this is what you call a, a, a riddle or a wisdom saying where you're supposed to figure out what is the implication. One of the ancient Christian um, uh, interpretations here, early church, is that if you have people in your church, you're all members of one another. If you have people in the church that are sinful, you've got to remove them, like in 1 Corinthians 5. And I don't mean sinful like um, we're all sinful. I mean like lifestyle sin, 1 Corinthians 5 removal. And um, I mean, it, that could be an application, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He's talking about body parts. If you see this thing, that, that then you go there, it's better to pluck your eye out than go there. Better, think about it. What a great way to think about it. I should pluck my eye out before I do that. Well, who's going to know? God knows. This is about God. The law is regulating your relationship, the Israel's relationship with God. That's what it was for. For it's better for you that one of your body parts be destroyed than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. Sin is consistently going to get you into the lake of fire in Matthew 5. And Jesus has paid for all our sins. And the only way not to go to Gehenna is not to avoid adultery, though you should. It's not to avoid uh, being angry or murder, though you should and were commanded to, but avoiding these things, you're still sinful, and you're still going to go to Gehenna. The point is that, um, that these are sinful, and it's not just about what the physical law can regulate by the physical courts. If your right hand causes you to stumble and cut it off and throw it from you, for it's better for you that one of your body parts be destroyed, than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. Most manuscripts say thrown again, but some say enter into Gehenna, but it doesn't matter. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, that's an unfortunate translation, it's porneia, logos porneia, a matter of, of fornication, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, it was said, to, it was said that whoever releases, the word for divorce in Greek is apoluo, and it's two words jammed together. Apa is from. It's a preposition, and it gets jammed onto a verb that means to loose or to release. So it's to release from. So that's why your Bible might say send her away because it's bringing out the literal etymological force of Apoluo. But it really... Is the word for divorce in the New Testament is to release a man releases his wife from her obligation to him, and apparently therefore from his obligation to her. And remember uh, the time in which their, the Deuteronomy twenty four happens. Their economic realities: there is no woman outside of her father's home or her husband's home. There's no such thing as an economic spot for her that isn't a brothel or something. That's really important to understand when you talk about God's regulations on divorce in the ancient world. What we divorce for is what we call first world problems. Now, I know it's pretty rough. It's first world problems because um, if a man hits his wife, her brothers cannot come and break their jaw and say, don't do that to my sister anymore and enjoy eating through a straw until you can heal up. You can't do that because they'll go to prison for assault. And so you don't have any kind of uh, of retaliatory ability in the family, so you can't regulate these things. But in, in the time in which the Bible was written, you could. You could. You would you would never go after a, a woman that you're married to who has brothers. The, the two by four committee is gonna get you. And and that we we kind of all knew it's not worth it. And we don't have anything like that now, so it's all, you know, it's all lawfare. But anyway, it was said whoever releases his wife, he must give to her a certificate of divorce. That's a direct quote of Deuteronomy 24.1. Jesus beats up on Deut- Deuteronomy 24 uh, in Matthew a couple times. He talks about this topic and goes to the one verse. There's like one verse that allows for divorce, like one passage that talks about this. Now, on the topic of marriage and divorce... Some will say if you're one flesh, then there's no such thing as divorce. So if you get legally divorced, you're still spiritually married. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says in Malachi 2, I hate divorce. Yeah, Malachi. I hate divorce. He acknowledges it. He knows there's such a thing, but he hates it. God hates it. Those of you who are divorced, those of you who are divorced, please listen to me. If you don't hate divorce, you don't understand you haven't learned from the experience. We all hate divorce. It's hell on earth. It's a living death. It's a violation of God's expectations. It's all of these things. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible that this would happen. And we can all agree and commiserate, and we're, and we're hurt for you if you've been through this. And a lot of you have. And this is, it's the scars of the time in which we live. But we don't change what the text says or what it means because we've been through an experience. We say, yeah, it was wrong. It's wrong that this happened. For whatever reason, Whoever is responsibility, it's wrong. It's not God's design. But anyway, Jesus says, whoever releases his wife, he must give to her a certificate of divorce. But I'm saying to you that whoever releases his wife, that's divorce his wife, except for a logos of porneia. Logos, porneia. A matter, the word or matter of porneia, fornication. Marriage, uh, the act of marriage between people that aren't married. In this case, it would be that act in adultery he makes her commit adultery. Whoever divorces his wife, except for her committing adultery, he makes her commit adultery. How is that? Economically, she has to go to somebody's house. So she has to enter the the situation of being someone else's wife. And to do that after divorce, except for adultery, is it self-adultery? It says here. Jesus further says, and whoever should marry a woman who has been released or divorced commits adultery. So whoever picks her up, she's been been kicked to the side. Somebody picks her up. Hey, honey, we're going to dust you off and take care of you. Come to my house. He's saying that's to commit adultery. That's what he says. It's very harsh. It's very harsh. I don't mean to be harsh. I don't want to be harsh with you. I want to be harsh with 20-year-olds and 17-year-olds and 15-year-olds. I appreciate you giving me a few minutes more to talk about this real quick. Marriage is so permanent. It's such an important thing to God. It's so you're so stuck if you do it. That the disciples in Matthew nineteen, when Jesus teaches them on marriage, from Matthew twenty four and Genesis two, it's so permanent that the disciples tell Jesus, If it's this way with a husband and wife, then it's better never to marry. If you're stuck, it's better not to be married. If you're stuck, it's better not to be married. That's what they say. And Jesus doesn't say, you're right. I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't say you're wrong. It's still good to be married. Jesus says, you're right. It's better not to marry, but for most people, this is not possible. We don't deny marriage, but we want you to understand it's gonna hurt. Paul says, I'm trying to save you from suffering. Marriage hurts because you're sinful and you hurt people. You thought I was gonna say because the sinner hurts you. But we do. We hurt each other. We're sinful. And some people are serially sinful. And they need the two-by-four committee. I agree. And it's a horrible time we live in on this issue. Just because someone goes to prison for assault, by the way, doesn't mean you get a divorce. The Bible doesn't say that. But they can't. What do you mean? uh, They're in prison. Yeah. They're going to get out. But then I can't be happy. Ah. That's what we do. That's why we get divorced. Because we want to get our certificate back. We want to get married. We want to find somebody that will work again. But see the way the Bible describes this, you're stuck. You're stuck. And just because you got a divorce, the Bible's issue on remarriage, it's actually a pretty sketchy question. It really is. Read it. You need to study the text for yourself on this. You cannot look to the culture. You can't look left and right. You can't ask Mark Driscoll or anybody else that's got a snappy take on this. You really need to look at the scriptures on what marriage and divorce looks like. If you want to be single, right? That's, what, that's really what divorce is driving you towards is just being by yourself. All by myself. <laughs> and the reason I'm saying this, you need to be disciples of Jesus who can say these things to others. You live in a divorce culture that denies the existence of God by divorce constantly. We need to be able to say, hey, you probably shouldn't marry that person until you know them better. You can always... Learn a little more before you go there. And I like young people getting married, having kids is for young people. I'm living proof. It's not for old people. Right? I love I love the idea of young people figuring out who they are and saying we're gonna do this for the Lord and, and going for it. But every time young people come to my office, I try to talk them out of getting married. Don't I? The first message is don't do this. Here are the places in the New Testament that say don't do this because you're stuck. So, but, 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 but uncle Paul, we'll serve the Lord together. We'll do it. We're going to do this. Okay. Okay. So you're going to do this, but you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to do it. Your integrity's on the line. Your love of Jesus is on the line. Your character is on the line. You need to do this for the witness of the gospel. That's the biblical view of marriage. Sexual sin is about marriage. Sexual sin is about marriage. The act of sex is a marital act. This is the destabilization of of your whole civilization, but it's also the destruction of your spiritual life. And it's a rampant problem, as you all know. And we're not being a bunch of prudes by saying this is what God's word says. Those of you who are divorced, please become disciple makers on the topic of marriage. Please be the person that comes alongside that young person and says, this is harder than you think it's going to be. And here are the encouragement I want to give you about how permanent marriage is. You don't want to end up in the situation that, I've been, that I'm in. You want to be like the rich man of Lazarus on this one. You want to tell the truth and not say, well, my experience changes the truth. It's really important, beloved believers in Christ. You be disciple makers in the situation that you're in. If you're not married, be a disciple maker as not married. And if you're miserable because you're not married, listen, you got a problem with the Lord. I understand there are certain aspects that are challenging about that. And I I haven't had to live that way since I was 24 years old. But you can be happy single in your relationship with Christ. And I expect nowhere else, no other way. You cannot make marriage replace your relationship with God, right? And so if you're single, be a disciple maker about being single, especially young people that are wondering about getting married. Let's figure out our spiritual lives, our love for God in our estate that we're in. Let's be stabilized that way. And then when you marry, you're a disciple maker. You're marrying a disciple maker. You're ready to disciple children, which is really what it's about. Because the kids, it's not about your happiness. It's not about your glory. It's not about your, your significance or your fulfillment. You're about to have children, and those kids are more important now than you. You have to be the caretaker. You have to put yourself under their needs and care for them, don't we? We have to. So I just I want you to hear my heart on this. It's very casual in our culture, but the Bible isn't casual about it. Jesus has a very clear message on this. And so basically what happens with divorce is an abortion. There's no way to do it well. My assignment to you, if you want to read up on this and t- test me and see if the scriptures are so, read Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus teaches on divorce. Moses said, yes, you could divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way. Haven't you read in Genesis chapter 2, the two became one flesh, whom therefore God joined together, let no man separate. That's the words of Jesus, not just the preacher at the, at the wedding, almost at the funeral. Either way, I'm sharing the gospel. <laughs> but just please understand, this is such a very important topic that gets, it, I understand misery. I understand uh, we're, we're called to carry a cross. Oh, you just don't understand. I'm so miserable. I get it. I think we're all called to suffer under something that's life-changing. Some people have cancer. Some people's children have cancer. There are things that we have to deal with in life that are super catastrophic, and to say, well, I just can't take up my cross and follow Jesus Christ. That's right. Some women who are, husband, who are wives to these husbands are crosses they have to carry. Some men are a cross that God, being in the estate where you have to fill this role, it, I, I can't do it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do what he calls me to do because I have the Holy, the Holy Spirit. This is the way about marriage. There is no... Dissolution of a marriage, according to the Lord Jesus, without hardness of heart. Do you want to be the hardness of heart person? You're the one requiring the divorce. You're the unforgiving person in Matthew 19. Now read it. Read it. If you need to repent of past sin on this because you thought you were right and you are wrong, you should do that. You should definitely get rid of that arrogance, that self-righteousness about bad decisions you've made. If I have a sin that I haven't confessed to God, I need to confess it. I need to own it. And I mean legitimately take it to God and say, I'm guilty. I don't ever need to say, well, this happened to me, so it must be okay. You with me? You with me? This is rampant now. It's touching our church in multiple places. And it's very clear in the Bible. And the only answer someone can give me when I ask them, why are you doing this? The only answer that I've heard is, I'm miserable. I expect... For the believers in Christ, with the Heavenly Father, with a a good uh, rod of correction, I expect the misery to increase. I expect the suffering to intensify in a different way, and I hate that for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your wisdom, for your care. Father, what I say is what I say. What you say is the word of God. My understanding, my interpretation can be wrong. I can be flawed. I can be uh, misunderstanding and, and all those things. But what have you said, Father? What do you require? What do you expect? Father, let our church family be free of this transgression of your character. Let us, as we go forward as a church family, say marriage is sacred to you. You hate divorce. This is the word of God father as we consider what the law is teaching help us embrace your righteousness righteousness doesn't mean that we feel good about ourselves father righteousness means that we are by your grace and really by your miracle commensurate with your character in our desires and our words and our and our actions father we don't want to be self-righteous and we don't want to be rough with people who are suffering we want to be honest and grieve with those who grieve, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. Father, I pray for you to strengthen the marriages of Preston City Bible Church, in fact, all of Christendom. Help us all represent Jesus Christ in these circumstances. And Father, if there are those that are suffering with a heavy weight of, of, a, of a, a marriage that is broken because of uh, choices that others make or bad decisions we've made in the past, I ask that you would intervene in those circumstances bring glory to yourself despite our failures let the truth shine through father always in everything we say and do so that we can shine your light among men and they know that you're there because of our example I pray for it in Jesus name we all said Amen.